moved past him. The Empress stood where these lords and prelates had made her stand, in the upper sanctuary behind the throne, almost out of sight of the people below. Almost, but not quite. She looked, with her daughters about her, like an image of Hagia Sophia in Byzantium where she was born, the moon and her attendant planets, lofty and imperially beautiful. No one would ever have guessed that she was angry. The Germans thought themselves subtle in setting her so high and yet so far apart, remote and powerless. Teofano would teach them what subtlety was. Aspasia, having surrendered her charge to the lords and the bishops, managed to come no closer to the throne than the chapel directly below it. They had used the throne in the portico that was proper to the German kings. It was that to which Otto had been raised for his election and acclamation. Now they led him up the spiral of the stair to the upper chapel, and in it the high seat, the throne of Charlemagne with its six steep steps. He mounted them one at a time, as a child will. A bishop walked on either side to steady him, John of Ravenna, Villigus of Mainz, Italy and Germany brought together to crown the new king. It was a terrible height for a child, and a long fall if he stumbled, down from the summit of the high chapel into the lower with all its press of people. He looked for a moment as if he would cry. Then, as he reached the top and turned, and saw them all below him, faces turned upward like flowers to the sun, he laughed. The choir had paused in its antiphon. His laughter rang out alone, light and clear and giddily exultant. The echoes died. The bishops readied themselves to seat the king on his throne. The cantor drew breath to begin the first phrase of the Te Deum. The people waited, caught in time, in the instant between crown and throne, between prince and consecrated king. A roar shattered the silence. Rome! Word from Rome! Tumult burst through the chapel, cries of outrage, shouts of protest, a woman's shriek. The great bull bellow that had begun it sounded louder now, full beneath the throne, clear above the rising uproar. Rome! Word from Rome! And true, I swear to God, the emperor, the emperor is dead! Aspasia was born a Byzantine. She intended to die one. She could be calm even in pandemonium, even at the end of a world. She rocked in the flood of grief and shock, disbelief and stunned belief. She knew the bitter taste of truth. It had a tang of irony. Otto, twenty-eight years old, was dead in Rome. Otto, three years old, lived in Aachen, poised to take the throne of Charlemagne. The bishops had forgotten him. No one else was close enough to remind them. The empress had disappeared. Of her daughters, only Sophia was visible, eldest and most unwilling to understand why her infant brother should be crowned here, and not she. Her face had drained of all its high color, its scowl of temper slackened into shock. No tears. Sophia only ever wept for rage. Otto eyed the long descent and the near riot below. The crown slipped. He steadied it with a hand. His glance found the tall chair behind him and reckoned its use as a haven. Calmly, 
while his people reeled to find themselves bereft of an emperor in the moment of gaining a king. He turned his back on them and clambered onto the broad stone seat. He settled there, wriggling a little, for the stone was cold even through the cushion, and set his hands on the arms as he had seen his father do. His head was high under the crown, his face composed. He did not know yet what death was or what it meant, but he knew that he was king. Part 1. Porphyrogenita Constantinople and Rome, 968-972 Chapter 1 It was raining hard with an edge of sleet scudding across the Sea of Marmara, rattling against the shutters of the sacred palace. Even with every brazier stoked red-hot and the hypocaust roaring below, the halls were as cold as they were beautiful. It was a fortunate functionary who could take refuge in his own house, with a warm wrap about him and a hot cup in his hands. Aspasia did not need to think about hot wine. She could have had it where she was coming from, for a price. It was, aptly enough, the festival of winter's beginning, the Brumalia, and little in it of Christian charity even after six hundred irreproachably Christian years. The great ladies of court and city would be struggling toward the palace through the wind and the wet, each to receive her length of imperial silk from the empress's own hand, and all together to dine at the imperial table. Aspasia should have been there in the flock of attendants about the Basilisa. She would slip in later. With luck, her gracious majesty would never have noticed the gap in the ranks. Swift feet sounded behind her. There were always people in the teeming city within a city that was the palace, but they seldom ran, and never in the empress's domain. Aspasia made herself smaller in the plain, dark mantle over her court dress, and hoped that she was invisible. She was the only living thing in that passage, and it was not a public one. No pillars or statuary to hide behind, not even a scrap of hanging. The runner was mantled as closely and darkly as herself, like a shadow in the gloom, but the voice was human enough, breathless as much with laughter as with exertion. Aspasia! Aspasia, will you wait? Aspasia waited. She was almost as displeased as she tried to look. Did I ask you to come with me? Did you think I wouldn't follow? The pursuer came to a halt, gangling graceful as a yearling foal. She was going to be a beauty, Aspasia reflected dispassionately. At the moment she looked like a hoyden, with the color high in her cheeks and her eyes sparkling and her hair doing its best to fly out of its plates. She had managed to get out of the swathings of court silks and into something sensible. Aspasia hated her for it. Here! she said, pressing something into Aspasia's arms. You can change here. I know just the place to hide your robe until we come back. So did Aspasia, maybe better than she. Aspasia was as native to this place as the other was, and had begun rather higher in it. She did not say so. She rid herself of her state robes and put on the plain wool gown with its skirt that let her stretch her stride, all without a word to the one who brought it. Nothing short of the Empress's wrath could cow Teofano. 
I told mother I had a headache and needed to lie down. She was busy. She believed me. We could probably escape the banquet if we wanted to. Shall I have a very bad headache? You will if your mother finds out that you lied," said Aspasia. Not, alas, as severely as she should. She was beginning to be amused. My lady mother, long life to her sacred Majesty, is going to be counting out ells of our second best silk until nightfall. I don't envy her at all," said Teofano. Or want to watch her when I can play truant with you. That was breathtakingly daring and quite worthy of a reprimand, except that time was flying. Aspasia settled for a repressive scowl and a long stride past Teofano. Teofano's longer stride matched itself easily to Aspasia's haste. Aspasia was utterly Byzantine, small, dark, and bird-boned. Teofano had the Macedonian height and fairness, although she had her mother's eyes, ox eyes, great and brown and deceptively soft. Her mother, the Basilisa, was the most beautiful woman in Byzantium. The Basilisa usually was. It was a requirement of the office, like fecundity, but unlike noble lineage. Her sacred Majesty was born a tavern keeper's daughter. She had no shame of it, nor felt she needed any. Her daughter had her wits as well as the promise of her beauty, and a goodly share of her stubbornness. I don't know why you thought you could creep out without me. You never have yet. I'll never stop trying. Aspasia slowed a fraction. What if I'm going to an assignation with my husband? Teofano was too well bred, at least, to laugh. At mid morning, on the Brumalia, with Demetrios. Now, if it were cousin.